It's going to be a hell of a 2017. Welcome to the 457 SEO, a place for stories, information, and observations about southeastern Ohio, presented by WAB News. I'm Atish Bhatia. I'm Susan Tebbin. I'm Aaron Payne. And I'm Allison Hunter. In this episode, we listen in on an important and nation-changing procedure that at one point in history would happen without really anyone noticing, but in this most recent election cycle, it proved to be more of a focus. You also get an understanding of how the addiction crisis in the region is weighing down an important program designed to help children involved in abuse and neglect cases. And yes, there's something you can do about it. And on a lighter note, do you really know what you're eating? If you're like most of us, at some point, especially this time of year, you're really thinking about what you're putting into your body. And you're going to hear about a plan that asks you to think more about how you're eating, not necessarily what you're eating. This is the 457 SEO. Okay, so at this point, I think we're all very clear that American voters do not vote directly for a president or a vice president in any given presidential election. When we vote, we vote for presidential electors, or better known as the Electoral College. And the system's been in place since the late 1700s. There have been changes in who chooses the electors and how many each state gets, but the current incarnation of our system has been in place since the late 19th century. The number of electoral votes per state currently ranges from 3 to 54, depending on the population of the state. Here in Ohio, there are 18 members of the Electoral College, and it is a partisan affair. If Democrats win the state, then the Democratic electors cast the final presidential ticket votes. As we know, it was the Republican electors who got to do the work. Susan spent the day inside the Electoral College proceedings at the Ohio State House. Take a listen. The electors have cast 18 votes for Donald J. Trump for president and 18 votes for Mike Pence for vice president. The 54th Ohio Electoral College met at the Columbus State House, unanimously voting for Donald Trump as United States president and Mike Pence as vice president. It's a process that's not often talked about because until this election, some have called the Electoral College Convention a formality. Eighteen electors voted into the position by members of their own party meet weeks after an election and in most cases vote for the candidate who received the most votes in the state, as Senate President Keith Faber explained. You are here representing a historic victory and a new direction in American politics. Your role as an elector representing thousands of Ohioans plays a vital part in our democracy, and we recognize and respect the significance of the vote we cast today. Today's proceedings affirm the intent of our country's founders to ensure that candidates listen and appeal to voters from all across this country and to every state, from small farm towns like I represent to the big sprawling cities on the coast. It ensures that the diversity of America's voters are represented in our national elections. 
But after the 2016 national election results ended in an electoral victory for Donald Trump, but a popular vote victory for Hillary Clinton, some members of electoral colleges around the country said they were debating changing their vote. Some, including Texas elector Christopher Suprin, even told media sources they might vote for Ohio Governor John Kasich. So, with more eyes on the Electoral College this time around, protesters marched outside, the Ohio Senate chamber filled with media and onlookers, and an overflow room downstairs held a capacity crowd. The Electoral College meeting was centered in procedure, but Kasich gave a speech before the votes were tallied, along with Ohio Treasurer Josh Mandel and resigned elector Christina Hagan. The will of Ohioans, the truth, will be carried out today by each of you each specifically and carefully selected for a time such as this. We know that God did not give us a spirit of fear, nor of timidity, but rather one of power, love, and self-discipline. The speeches ranged from high praise of Trump from Mandel. I think one of the beautiful things of President-elect President Trump's election uh, is that he brought people together across the political spectrum, across the socioeconomic spectrum, across the racial spectrum, and across the religious spectrum as well. To appreciation of the duty of the electorate from the governor. Several speakers, including Ohio Secretary of State John Husted, commented on the protesters and those that sent mail to electors urging them to vote against Trump. You are members of the most exclusive college in the world, the college which through its 227 years of existence has only had 1,143 Ohio members. Uh, but I bet you probably received more mail than all the rest of <laughs> After hearing from speakers, electors voted to fill the seat of Hagen, who had resigned from the college after receiving legal opposition to her being a member. The seat was filled by Ohio Trump campaign official Robert Scott through unanimous vote of the college. The presidential voting process was relatively quick, and within minutes, the results were tallied. The votes were certified and will now be sent to the United States Senate, the Archivist of the United States, and the U.S. District Court. The Electoral College meeting caps the election process for Ohio and is one tiny part of the exercise that ushers in a new administration in the new year. So my question is, what was the feeling of the room? Was it serious, get down to business, or was it more celebratory because most of the electors were selected and screened by the Trump campaign. It was definitely, in my opinion, more casual than a procedural you know, thing from the state house would be, I think. It was definitely, they had already decided the victor and they were kind of making a case for, we've, in the state of Ohio, elected Donald Trump president. We're here to just confirm that. So there wasn't really any politicking one way or another. It was just that Donald Trump is our president but were the, they partying? They were like, hey, it's yeah. good to see you. I hadn't seen you since, what, last week? Or <laughs> since we decided? It was it was celebratory. Even the Ohio Secretary of State, John Husted, was saying, we voted him president, and it is a time, is a happy time, I believe is what he said. So, you know, people were clapping. People were cheering. You could hear the overflow room downstairs. They were cheering. You could hear that even in the Senate chamber. So it was definitely not a time that they were paying attention to the protesters. They were, the vote was the last thing that they did. And before that, it was speeches about how Trump is going to make America great again and how we've all done our duty 
confirming him as president. And so it was generally an upbeat room. So what was the governor like in terms of his attitude and body language from what you could observe? Because he definitely was not a fan of Trump. And it sounds like everyone else was there sort of patting each other on the back and celebrating Mm -hmm. uh, the election win. Yeah, and it's surprising, actually. Well, for a large part, he was very official. He was here to witness and certify the vote because the governor, by statute, has to be there to see the vote and sign it off and then forward it on. Um, But during his speech, he did say, we're here to finalize the vote for Donald Trump as president. And he didn't really go into any comments other than that. Obviously, during the time in between the election and the electoral vote, we had heard some people saying that they were going to vote for John Kasich instead of Trump as electors just to protest. He had publicly said, don't do that. I didn't win any votes, enough votes to be president, and I don't want that to be the case. He didn't have any comments like that during his speech. He largely said the Electoral College is a duty that you have to not take for granted, and they weren't doing that today, and we're just here to confirm Donald Trump. He's all business, just sticking to the the duties that he needs to do. Right. As Nobody governor. asked my opinion. I'm here to do my job. This is what my job is. Mm-hmm. This is where we are at this point in time, moving forward into the new year. Yeah, but he was doing the duty of the governor. So, right. So everyone's inside the chamber, inside the state house, doing their job outside. How are the protesters? I mean, other than doing their protesting duty, they're doing their duty. Did you get to talk to any of them? I did. I talked to Sylvia Efta. She's actually a Clintonville resident. And she had much to say about she didn't want to sit at home. She just wanted to get out and make her voice heard, which was largely the attitude of the protesters. There wasn't any, we think us standing out here is going to make them all change their minds, but they wanted to get their voices heard. There were signs saying dump Trump and there were chants about getting rid of Trump, but a lot of it was the electoral college needs to change. And that's actually a lot of, I asked a question on Facebook to our Facebook viewers, readers, um, whether they thought that the electoral college needed to change, what their opinion of it was, and we actually got some interesting comments. So we had Marjorie who said, I don't understand why my vote gets discarded because someone in the electoral college of my state is deemed to know better than me who to vote for. I voted for a leader of the nation, yet my vote only made it to the state level. And we had a few different people that said, you know, don't change it just because it doesn't go your way. Uh, In response to Marjorie, we had Alan that said, your vote did count the same as mine. We voted to secure our state for one or the other candidates running. And Marjorie responded to that saying, my interests are not the same as a majority of the people in the state that I live in. So you have that sort of dichotomy where people believe their vote doesn't count and people believe the Electoral College is in place and has been since the 1700s and it's been doing its job the way it's supposed to be doing it. Because the idea of if you're in a state that has more space than people, then maybe your interests will get shouted down because you don't have enough people like looking out for your interests. Isn't Congress supposed to be the part that makes sure sparsely populated areas have their voice heard? Sure. The number of electors each state gets is based on how many members you have in Congress, how many you have in the House of Representatives, and the definite two that you have in, in the Senate. 
Yeah, that's an argument I've heard. It's against the popular vote, actually, is the more populated areas will have more of a say when on the other side of the coin you have people saying the Electoral College gives people like, you know, battleground states more say than other states. But the dynamic we're having now is the opposite, right? Now people who, the interests of people who live in sparsely populated areas is having more weight than folks living in more populated urban areas in some ways. Which gets into that whole bigger question between rural and urban and why has it been the polar opposite interest when problems that are happening in rural areas are the same problems that are happening in in inner city areas, but for some reason we can't seem to to work them out. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Just still, again, wherever I live, there's 2.5 million Mm-hmm. Almost three million. Yeah, uh, almost three million. So wherever they are, there are three million people whose vote vote didn't count. Is that what we're saying? There should be a third thing, and then you two out of three. That's your president. I I don't know what that third thing would be, but popular vote, electoral college, and blank. Deathmatch. <laughs> no one wins in that. Thunderdome. Yes. <laughs> I think we go to a good old-fashioned SmackDown deathmatch, WW. Well, Trump would have won that because he's got experience in such endeavors. I don't know. I don't know. Objectively, he cannot take a stunner. (laughs) I mean, it was clearly. (laughs) I watched. I saw it. I I don't know that anyone believes that he can take a stunner. There's video. Coming up, when your caseload has doubled and then tripled just in two years, finding those CASA volunteers willing to give the time and the energy to these cases is difficult. That story next. The Ohio Valley's drug epidemic isn't just affecting individuals struggling through addiction, it's impacting their families and children as well. Aaron has the story of one organization dealing with a flood of cases linked to the addiction crisis. Tessa DeTiro walks into a small storefront in downtown Moundsville, West Virginia. After speaking with me, she will talk with the volunteer coordinator about a court case she has been working on since August, involving an infant and a young child. DeTiro is a local television journalist, but also a community volunteer assigned to her first case for court-appointed special advocates for children. CASA, for short, trains people nationwide to be the objective voice of children involved in abuse and neglect cases. Tiro says her job is to get to know the families involved, but remain objective when making recommendations on the children's behalf. She says it can be difficult when evaluating the emotional effect the situation has on the older child. It was sad for him on his birthday. His uh, parents couldn't be there. His parents didn't even reach out to him. But she says her training has taught her to focus on what is best for the children and not get too involved personally. This case, like many others CASA volunteers deal with, involves parents who suffer from a substance use disorder. The region's addiction crisis is making it difficult to reunite families and threatens to overwhelm some CASA programs. Susan Harrison, executive director for the CASA organization covering four West Virginia counties, says the opioid epidemic has contributed to an increased caseload for 2016. 162 new cases. In 2010, we were serving 50 new kids a year. 
She estimates that up to 90% of their caseload involves addiction. The number of volunteers has not increased with the caseload. When your caseload has doubled and then tripled just in two years, finding those CASA volunteers willing to give the time and the energy to these cases is difficult. The 11 CASA nonprofits serving 13 counties in West Virginia share similar challenges. Those challenges extend across the border to Ohio. When directors for 40 CASA programs covering 47 counties gathered December 3rd and 4th at a statewide conference in Columbus, it didn't take long for the opioid epidemic to come up. As we talked about yesterday, you're all getting connected. That's statewide director Doug Stevens. He says CASA programs in Ohio are also in need of resources. On top of recruiting new advocates, they have been pushing for additional funding. The courts CASA operates in through the Ohio Valley are advocating for the program. Judge Robert Stewart appoints CASA volunteers to abuse and neglect cases in the Athens County Probate and Juvenile Courts. He's been working with CASA for more than a decade. This happens to be, I think, one of the most worthy programs that you could volunteer for. With the rise of the opioid epidemic, Judge Stewart says CASA is a necessity for courts. Having someone who is able to present it from the eyes of the child uh, and look only at the best interest of the child is a very refreshing um, outlook. But the opioid epidemic is presenting challenges to the Athens County CASA program as well. Executive Director Jenny Stotts. I dream of the day that we will have a waiting list of volunteers waiting for a child to serve instead of a waiting list of children waiting for a CASA. Go to Kentucky and you will hear similar stories. The number of volunteers for the 18 programs currently operating across 41 counties has not increased much. But programs across the Ohio Valley continue to recruit people from all walks of life to take the 30-hour training and become advocates. For Tessa DeTiro, balancing her job as a local television journalist and her work with CASA can be a challenge. But to see the positive impacts on a child who has experienced abuse and neglect is rewarding. It's fun to hear that he loves to do sports, that he loves math. So that's been the really rewarding part. So how does CASA know how many cases that they deal with that are opioid epidemic related? The answer is twofold. One, they don't do any investigations in CASA. They are not uh, responsible for the investigation. So other agencies, Child Protective Services or other law enforcement branches have determined that the reason for this case going to court in part involves a parent struggle with addiction. Um, the reason CASA knows how many of those cases involve drugs is because they keep stats on it, and the reason they know so many are involving drugs is because the frequency just kept going up and up and up to the point where eventually you're going to notice, hey, something's going on here. Before, a few years ago, there was a point where there were certainly cases of abuse and neglect that involved drug addiction, but it wasn't 90% of the caseload, right, whereas right. it is now. So with the wait list that's happening, what happens to the children who are those cases that don't get a CASA volunteer? I didn't get to get to it in the piece, but obviously they have to do something in counties where there isn't a CASA sure. program. So that is when a, a judge will appoint a layperson or an attorney, a professional, which is typically known as a guardian, guardian ad litem. And they basically serve the same role as a CASA volunteer. But there are a couple issues with that in that, one, they cost money. They cost courts money. So if those cases build up and up and up, for example, Judge Stewart gave me the example that in Athens County, he estimates that volunteers do about 
7,000 to 8,000 hours of work for the county if he had to pay a layperson for just 5,000 hours that would be about $100,000 a year so to have that is good for the court system number two is these attorneys and lay people lay persons lay people persons people yeah Mm -hmm. They're involved with other things, so they might not be able to pay as much attention to this one particular case as, say, a CASA volunteer that all they do is focus on that one case. So CASA, when promoting itself, likes to say, one, we save the court's money. Two, our volunteers are able to focus on cases, whereas, excuse me, a professional may not be able to pay as much attention to this case when they've got other things going on. In terms of the 30 hours of training, what are the volunteers being trained on for those 30 hours? What are they focusing on? You learn what's appropriate and what's not appropriate for a CASA volunteer. Uh, For example, Tessa Dottiro, the volunteer that I talked to, talked about on the birthday of the child when the parents didn't even reach out. She brought him a little toy and they had a conversation to try to compensate for that. That's about as much as you can do. You can't really say, oh, we're going to go, I'm taking you to Chuck E. Cheese's, we're going to Chuck E. Cheese's. You can't really do that. So they teach you the line where making sure the child is taken care of and where that line crosses into doing too much. Other things they teach are reasons for abuse and neglect, trying to not have sympathy for the parents, but empathy, being able to put themselves in the place of the parent and understand that the knee-jerk reaction in society, I would presume, is that take those kids away, get those kids as far away from those parents as possible, but then you have to bring it in and say that not all parents deserve their kids, but all kids deserve to have their parents. Hmm. And that's not a quote by me. That is a quote by the volunteer coordinator from the CASA program um, in West Virginia that I talked to. Her name's Erin Jordan. She didn't make the uh, final cut for the future, but she had a lot of good things to say. It was just a time crunch. So sorry, Erin. So it's, there's a focus on the children, but we also want to focus on getting the parents back. Because the children need their family. Mm-hmm. Right. Ideally. Ideally. It doesn't always happen. Uh, for example, these are... I'm going to have a disclaimer right here and say these are estimated numbers. Within West Virginia in a year, last year, there was a study done that looked at all the cases of abuse and neglect and then looked at how many of them resulted in the termination of parental rights, and it was about a fourth. Again, further disclaimer, those are estimates. So, I guess I was my question was, what's the goal of a CASA volunteer in terms of helping the child in terms of uh, with the ultimate goal of reunification? That's the ultimate goal, but the the job of the CASA is to determine if that goal is feasible or not. You have to make a recommendation to the court saying the child wants this. The parent is not necessarily equipped or the parent has done these things laid out by the court within the improvement period, which is typically a maximum of nine months. Okay. which presents a whole myriad of challenges with the drug epidemic. But 
Yeah. Right, because if it's a rehab situation. Right, and, and there's no resources, you're waiting three months out of your nine months just waiting to get in a treatment facility. Yeah. Is it a point where they're, they're going to re- have to reevaluate how they provide services or what their goal is with their service because of the overwhelming number of drug addiction cases? It's not necessarily that CASA is not prepared for these cases. They have been doing them for a while. They know the signs. They know when they see uh, drugs as an allegation on the petition. They know we need to do this, this, and this. But when they see it, it's like these cases last longer and they are typically messy and it's not a good sign for reunification because of the challenges with um, treatment resources, wraparound resources like getting the parents Uh, housing, jobs, transportation, all of those things. So it's not necessarily that they're not equipped. They've been doing it for a while. They know what they're doing. It's just a matter of these cases are messy. These cases are long. And the big thing is because they're increasing, they got to try to keep up with the one volunteer to one case ratio. And that's the big problem. The the turnaround time from one volunteer wraps up one case and is able to move on to the next case. Right, which they can do it. And more experienced volunteers can be assigned to multiple cases if the CASA staff believe that the children will still be served. And CASA staff members are on deck to serve as advocates. They try to keep them away because they have their own duties within the program. The program in West Virginia, they have three full-time staff, and that includes Susan Harrison and Aaron Jordan, who I mentioned earlier. They have a third staff member, and their their duties are to basically try to recruit and to get fund, go out in the community and get funding, which is difficult to do when you have to be called on to be an advocate. So there are, there are recruitment efforts um, in most counties in Southeast Ohio. There are uh, CASA uh, um, volunteers. There is a there's a map within the story made by the data journalist for the Ohio Valley Resource, Allie, shouts out. Um, And it maps out which counties do have CASA programs. And if there is one in your county, there you can go to um, the website for Ohio CASA, and that will lead you to get in contact with your local CASA program, and you can find out how to donate or sign up and volunteer. Um, the reporter that you talked to, why did she decide to be a CASA volunteer? I'm just curious. When she was in college, her sorority's national philanthropy was CASA. So she had a cursory knowledge of the program helping raise money to boost up CASA as an organization. She moved to the Northern Panhandle to become a television journalist and did a story with the local program that I talked to and that kind of made it click. She determined that this is something I can do. This is something I want to do. And there are all kinds of volunteers. There are working professionals like Tessa. There are also retired educators. There are grandmothers. There are grandfathers. There are bankers, lawyers, doctors, all of these different people that have a passion for caring for these abused and neglected children that want to do it. It's a lot of work. The estimates indicate a CASA volunteer is going to work about 10 hours a month plus training because you have to go through yearly training after you go through the initial 30 hours. So it's a lot of work, but the rewards, if you have the passion for caring for these children, are numerous. 
And immeasurable. And immeasurable. Excellent. And you can see that story on our website, woub.org. When we come back, you have to be disciplined enough to to continue on that path. Stay tuned. All right, check this out. According to a national study, Ohio now ranks 26 in terms of adult obesity rates 26 in the nation okay the rate 29.8 yep almost 30 percent what that means is that we have work to do i mean and and we've done some work because that number 20 29.8 percent in 2015 is down from what it was in 2014 that's it was 32.6 percent then so we're working on it um here's another statistic for 10 to 17 year olds here in ohio our 10 to 17 year olds rank 14th in terms of young people considered obese. And to put that in perspective, Mississippi's rate was 21.7%, ours is 17.4%, Oregon had 9.9%. So there are fewer preteens and teens in Oregon who are considered obese. Okay, so those are a lot of numbers right there. These numbers are from the State of Obesity a Project of the Trust for America's Health and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Yeah, there's such a thing. And so we'll post a link to that report on our website. There are a number of ways we know to tackle, to tackle obesity issues. Mary Meehan of the Ohio Valley Resource explains one. It's called mindful eating. For this exercise, let's go ahead and close our eyes. University of Kentucky professor Dr. Giza Bruckner warns the class at the Lexington Healing Arts Center that meditation, while simple, may not be easy. The focus of the class is mindful eating. Then I'd like you to just ever so slightly shift to the left, to the right. Most of the class was middle-aged women, although there were a few men, and the strain showed on their faces as they tried to clear their heads. For some of you, that may not be easy to do, and... Uh, your mind may wander all over the place. A health sciences researcher who studies things like the impact of probiotics on gut health, Bruckner has practiced mindfulness for decades and knows it can be powerful. Uh, and you have to keep doing it. I mean, you have to be disciplined enough to, to continue on that path. But can mindful eating fight obesity? Because the Ohio Valley has a problem. In Ohio, more than a quarter of adults are obese. In Kentucky, it's about a third. And in West Virginia, it's a little more than a third. Professor Emeritus at Indiana State University, Jean Christeller, has researched the relationship between mindful eating and health. It doesn't have to be about the quantity. It can be about savoring the food. It can be about the quality of the food. Christeller also wrote the book, The Joy of Half a Cookie. And she says it starts with science. After a few bites of a new food, our taste buds check out. Christeller says it's a chemical reaction, yet we keep chasing the flavor. Those first few bites of ice cream tasted fabulous, but you weren't going to get that back by continuing to eat. It also involves tradition, especially in places like Appalachia. 
As a therapist, she's worked with folks who've known real hunger. They are the first or second generation out of a family where people really didn't feel like they had enough to eat. Now food is all around us and cheaper than ever. You might not be able to wrangle cash for a Cadillac, but candy canes? They're $1.39 for a box of 12 at Kroger. But, she says, if you're mindful, you can change those patterns. Half a cookie can feel like enough. When you really learn to tune in, you realize you don't want the other half. And that's a huge shift. Sarah Jane Sanders spent months thinking about food and culture for EAT. Welcome to our home. We talked with her at her home outside of Frankfort, Kentucky. EAT is a literary and photography exhibit on display at the Norton Center for the Arts in Danville, Kentucky at Center College. I, I love having conversations over food and, you know, wine or tea and just the social event that is often surrounded by food. A baker's dozen of written works were picked from some 200 submissions. Then Sanders crafted images to match the words. She found a consistent theme of food as a connection. Mm. Want some more? Okay. It's a connection she feels even stronger as she cares for her eight-month-old son, Taryn. We also have peaches. And that communal way of eating is my favorite. And oftentimes, because of that, memories are created. And most of us, whether it be from smell or uh, taste, can remember something from our childhood. And those memories that are surrounded by food are some of my favorite. While her diet is now focused on locally grown fresh food, she still has a soft spot for comfort food some might find odd. My friend Amy and I used to get up in the morning and we'd work at um, a horse farm together. And it was a tradition for us to go to the convenience store and buy a Dr. Pepper and Swiss rolls. And as we were cleaning stalls and taking care of horses, that is what we ate for breakfast. Changing your view of the food you eat and how you eat it is all part of being mindful. And as Sanders' own evolution shows, we all have to start somewhere. Can I say that I've tried mindful eating? Yes. Okay. Well, I've tried mindful eating. Okay. <laughs> um, I was at a three-day silent meditation retreat in West Virginia, of all places, a couple years ago. Of all places? I mean, a Buddhist a Buddhist. In Nelsville? Um, no, wait, they're Honey Krishna, sorry. High Point or something. I'm not sure. High something. Mm. Someplace in West Virginia. But it was a three-day meditation, silent meditation retreat. You said hi. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yeah, we had to sit there and we were encouraged to eat mindfully during mealtimes. And Did they ring the bell? They did ring a bell. And it was an interesting process to really sit and just take one spoonful of food and do the process of chewing and swallowing that, and then one at a time. And then after all of that, going back home or going back into the real world and just sort of like scarfing sho- scarf down, mm-hmm. like shoveling food down my in my face and, and you know, eating the food that was cooked there and then, you know, going like to a fast food place or something, grabbing a quick burger or something and, and trying to eat that mindfully. And you're like, this tastes horrible. <laughs> mm. Like there is a it, – it does make a difference. You, you appreciate the food and the flavors so much more. And when you then eat food that's not as good for you or it's processed and you eat that mindfully, you can really taste a difference. You can – you're like, this doesn't – it just doesn't taste as good. The textures, all that stuff, it's 
it's interesting and it was really interesting as an observation to be like when you just start shoveling this fast food down and not even tasting it and to go from that to mindful it was I didn't keep up with it as much as I should because right it's a practice that we have to do a discipline but it, it I definitely saw a difference and I definitely made me want to at least initially make sure that I was eating healthier and cooking healthier because I wanted to have those flavors if I was to continue mindful eating I wanted those flavors to make to taste good to me be more satisfying and more satisfying yeah right the whole idea of paying attention to what you're doing and what you're eating and considering as important as nourishment is and that is probably something we should all pay attention to and so at this time of year as we move into a new year um, and people find all different ways to try to say they're going to turn over a new leaf or I hate to use the R word resolutions what we eat is always our the weight plan the diet whatever we're going to eat better is always a part of that Um, I'm not in the goal I'm not in the I'm not in the business of doing resolutions anymore, but I did I did read one uh, one study that talked about, especially at the beginning of the year, when people say they're going to eat better, we often set ourselves up for failure because during the holiday season, we have bought sweets and crappy food, and so that's all sitting in the house. And then you start the beginning of the year with all the things you should not be eating still sitting in your house, you have set yourself up uh, for failure in a very quick and simple and easy way. And we spend more at that time of year for food that's at the, in the holiday season. And then, so we spent this extra money, we have all these things, and then we tell ourselves we're going to be good about the food. So, And, and we've also sort of like the season of indulgence in a way, right? It's like, oh, I'll just... It's it's a holiday time. I'll have this sweet thing. I'll eat this thing. I'm going to indulge a little bit. And then all of a sudden to go from that to trying to right. turn that off. Because that whole idea of beginnings, we like new beginnings. And um, so many social scientists will say, and I heard some of this on the Hidden Brain podcast, shout out, that think of it as an, why we like the new year, because it's a new beginning. But there are a lot of new beginnings. That's why, they're, you know, I'm going to do this on Monday. Or you can do it on your birthday. Or you can do it on, you know, so pick a beginning and, and start from there. And then understanding when you have goals, what your goals are and why you have those goals. Because that whole idea of I'm going to do this so I'll look good in my clothes is never really going to work. Because that's considered an instrumental or an external motivation. Or I'm going to do this because he's going to think or she's going to think I look cute. Or I'm going to take a better picture on social media. That those external reasons are not gonna are not gonna cut it, because you'll find another reason to do that. Well, I'll just use a filter, or I'll you know I won't like him anymore or whatever. But you have to have from what some studies have shown that you have to have that internal reason. And when both reasons, if you that internal reason of because it's going to make me feel better, I'm going to be healthier, and it's that thing that just burns inside of you. But if you do both. If you have an external reason, I want to be healthy and I'm going to look good in my clothes, supposedly they clash and you lose motivation. Hmm. It's not having more reasons doesn't work. This study was done, uh, was dealing with um, cadets at West Point and they looked at 
why um, they were motivated to become commissioned officers. And so if it was to make more money or to get a free college tuition, that's an external. But if it was to be the best that I could be, because I've always wanted to be in the Army and be a commissioned officer and blah, 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 that was internal, that would get you through the hard times. If it was to make more money, you'd be like, I'll find another way to make more money. You know, or I find another way to, you know, when stuff got hard, you weren't so you weren't so into going through the struggle. So whatever goal you have, if it's not an internal one first, if it's not just in you to because I want this to help me. I find internal health goals because I'm struggling with this now <laughs> to be very hard to be like, oh, to, it, to I need to be healthier. But what does that mean? Because right now I'm relatively healthy. I don't really feel the aches and the pains or. There's not a tangible impact. Oh, wait till you turn four. Right. <laughs> Do you have, have this crink in my neck that's been there for a while? But, you know, yeah. there's not that tangible, I'm not really feeling that tangible impact. So that healthy, saying I want to be healthy or I want to feel better, those are still intangible in my life. So it's hard to, like, internalize that goal because I don't know what that feels like. Yeah, you really have to think comparison. about You have to think about the future of, like, um, it, later on in life. Eating this way is going to cause my arteries to clog and it's going to cause my back to hurt and all that stuff. So, yeah, it is. that's something I've been struggling with, too, is, yeah, eating this fried chicken is really going to bother me later, but it tastes good now. <laughs> Delayed gratification right. and that whole idea of, um, like you said, looking, looking down the line. But let me tell you, as the oldest one sitting in this room, pay attention. <laughs> <laughs> what about... Allison, because you talked about you, you've been doing some research on you know, resolutions and goals and motivations. You know, as I work through my own process, what about like those, that, those small goals of just trying to uh, framing it as like, okay, not necessarily I want to feel better, I want to be healthier, but tomorrow I'm going to eat a little bit healthier. And then, then you do that, and you think, oh, I achieved this. And then the next day, okay, I'll continue this, and, tom- and the next day I'll do my best to eat a little bit healthier, and it sort of slowly snowballs and builds it that way. Well, that kind of fits into that idea of, again, you first have to say why. Why am I going to eat healthier tomorrow? So what's your motivation for that And and from what I've read? And then the idea of there are always new beginnings, and so tomorrow is a new beginning. And so you treat tomorrow, and then the next tomorrow, and then the next tomorrow, and and you find out what what helps propel you and what helps build your confidence into doing I won't say the right thing but your goal into working towards your goal because anything you have a goal and and understanding that success is success successive success is successive you build on it so you do have one day that leads to two days that leads to three days oh day four wasn't so good but you do have three days behind you, so don't throw it all away, and you build up to day five and all of that. And being compassionate with yourself, too. Be kind to yourself. <laughs> mm-hmm. You wouldn't call your friend. You wouldn't dog your friend out if they did something, someone that you really considered a friend, if they fell off the wagon or whatever wagon that they're on. Um, and so you have to treat yourself honestly and as kindly as possible because that's the other part. You can't just say, oh, well, I ate this roll of cookies. Or whatever it is. I don't want to say that because I want to get off the food thing. But you can't say, oh, this doesn't matter. Well, it matters. It just is not the end of the world. So do better. You have another chance to do better. Do better. 
And this may be a question maybe you can answer or maybe we cut it. Um, was there anything on cheat days? And, you know, not even just I can eat cookies this day. Like I can rest from my exercise that day or I can rest from whatever I'm doing. Is there any psychology on cheat days? I think it was more of just that idea because you can't do denial. If you deny yourself something, you are going to binge at some point. Right. Most people are that way. We swing one way and you you can do fine on on abstaining, but at some point there's a good shot that you're going to, and I don't know the numbers, but you're you're going to go full full blast. And so instead of abstaining, going back to being mindful about what you're doing, paying attention. Do I need a row of, if we're talking about food, do I need a row of cookies? Or is it that idea that I've got the taste that I want in my mouth after two or three, and do I want something crunchy after that? Well, then maybe I, you know, make a healthier choice on the mm-hmm. crunchy side. So It's that same idea as instant gratification. I find myself doing this. I want Burger King. And then I'm driving. Yes. And I'm driving Mm -hmm. and I'm actually thinking, well, what do I want? Do I want? No, I don't really want. And by the end of it, I finally figure out I don't really need that. I don't want that. I have stuff at home I could eat that would be probably more filling. And that's that's just what I wondered about cheat days is you're no, I'm going to do this until I can get to this day and then I can eat my row of cookies or, you know, I don't actually need that. Or maybe you have a cookie a day and then the cheat day doesn't seem as necessary because you are being mindful that I do want a taste of something sweet because I like I like sweet things. And mm-hmm. and to try to tell yourself, I mean, and that you don't, I mean, unless you're doing that whole re, recalibration of your, you know, I'm not a dietitian or anything like that, but if you're, unless you're trying to change your taste buds and change what is good for you, but it's still all the mental work back to why are you doing it? And I'm doing this because I see down the line that I have people in my family that, you know, are living this way or not living that way. Chances are, because we share the same DNA, that I'm going to be doing this or doing that. So what's the pattern? How do I how do I mimic or change? And why is that? And again, and if it's just so I can look like something in a magazine or I can get a better job, you're probably not going to stick with it. Cookies for everybody. <laughs> okay, now I'm hungry. Yep. This thing is lunchtime. Operator, anyone? <laughs> I don't have to be mindful to tell you that's <laughs> not a good idea. <laughs> Me either. Four five seven SEO is produced in the WOUB Public Media Telemix Studio. Adam Rich is the audio supervisor, Aaron Payne editor, and Nathan McGuire created the music. Follow WOUB News on Twitter and Facebook. You'll find this recording at hashtag 457SEO. And iTunes, baby! And iTunes. Yay! Yay. Hit that subscribe, five-star reviews. Yeah. (laughs) How do we incentivize people to leave five-star reviews? Like, if you leave a five-star review... We'll be mindful we'll sh- about it. If you leave a five-star review, you'll get a shout-out at the end of the show as a, as a five-star listener. If you leave a five-star review, you get quality journalism. <clears throat> also, we'll, sh- we'll shout you out. Right. Five-star <laughs> five review, we'll shout you out. Feedback, 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 feedback. Yes, please. All right. That's it. 
I'm Susan Tebbin. I'm Atish Baidya. I'm Allison Hunter. And I'm Aaron Payne. <laughs> we'll catch you next time. And see. drag it in or did you have a question no i was just saying i forgot to make the joke that casa in athens county isn't the rest isn't just a restaurant i almost did but i figured that was rude no no they've embraced it all right because like when somebody calls in like hey uh can i get a burrito they'll just be like um i'll go get it for you if you order me one too (laughs) and then like they go have office meetings down there they call it their um their north office casa north (laughs) and and casa's embraced it too they like they've unprompted and like held fundraisers for casa and stuff so it's a nice it's a nice little relationship